Morning. Um, most of you know me. If you don't, uh, well, some of you will know me. I'm Adam, and my wife Hannah will be speaking, will be alternating. Um, we're both members of the church here. I've been here on and off for about a decade, Hannah, for uh, a little less. Um, and it's a privilege to be exploring John 17 with you this morning. Um, we've been wrestling with this for about a month or so, and wrestling over the last couple of days. It's been, um, yeah, it's been a bit of a battle, to be honest. But we'll see what we, we feel that God's got stuff to share. So um, hopefully he'll be speaking. We're going to read it in a second, um, and we'll see that it's jam-packed. We're not going to be able to deal with all of it. Um, but we're trying to draw out a few of the key ideas. And, oh, can you even read it? Well, the stuff in yellow, hopefully you'll be able to read. Um, we've summarized it in a tagline. Um, you'll know I'm a punctuation geek, but, the, uh, but hopefully it'll make sense. The tagline is, the church becoming, with the come bit in brackets, you'll see why in a second, becoming one with the God of ages. The thing about the bracket is it means it can either be being or becoming. See, it's really clever. Um, so, uh, church, being or becoming one with the God of ages. Um, and so, this, uh, there are a few things that we feel that Jesus emphasizes in this passage. The love of the Father, the love that the Father and he uh, share that stretches from the beginning of time to its end. That's the God of ages part. Um, how God's desire is for the church to enter into that relationship with father and son, the, the, the relationship that they have shared throughout time. That's the being one with God. Um, how thus this involves us being united with one another. That's the being or becoming one and how this is both a present reality, a work in progress, and a future hope. That's the being becoming strange amalgam thing. Um, try to look out for some of these as we read the passage. So if you turn to John 17, I'll read. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. For they are yours. 
All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory and the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, Though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Father, the hour has come. Jesus' first words in in this passage reveal its significance. Firstly, we're being given a rare insight into the conversation between Jesus and his dad. We know from chapter 5 that Jesus is constantly aware of what his father is doing. But John has only showed Jesus talking to his father twice previously. Whatever this is, it has to be important. And secondly, the hour has come. We've reached a climax. In fact, we've reached three climaxes. The first, so at one level, this is a climax in a conversation which began back in chapter 13 with the start of Jesus' farewell discourse, his parting words to his disciples. These are Jesus' last words to or in front of his closest friends. 
At another level, this is the climax of a conversation that started way back at the beginning of the Gospel. Jesus has been talking about the hour since chapter 3, where we have the story of the wedding of Cana. But at a third level, this marks the climax of a conversation that began before the world began. In verse 5, if you look, Jesus talks about the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. Whatever Jesus says here, whatever he prays, had its origins before the beginning of time. So, at this critical juncture, in this moment of intimacy, which he knows we're eavesdropping on, what does Jesus say? Well, there are two key themes in the first five verses, which help us. I'm just going to read those first few verses again. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Glory and eternal life, those are our two themes. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So two themes, glorifying the Son and through him the Father, giving eternal life. What is Jesus' desire here? Well, what links both these ideas is that they're both about God being known by his people. Known for who he really is. We'll also see that in this context, they make Jesus' prayer span from the beginning of time, as we've seen partially already, to the end of time. Glory was a concept I struggled to understand until I read Exodus 33 or 34. If you struggle with understanding glory, after I've spoken now, go back and read Exodus 33 and 34, but I'll summarize it for you um, in a second. We use it in church to mean something like praise. Give glory to God, give praise to God, give worship to God. Footballers also use it to mean something similar. I mentioned it to my housemate, Mike, and he immediately started singing, glory, glory, Tottenham. And then I'm sorry, I'm Hotspur. Um, anyway, in... <laughs> Uh, anyway, footballers give us some understanding, but it's better if we look to Exodus 33 and 34. Um, in, in Exodus 33:18, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God replies, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So, Moses asks to see God's glory, and God says that he will show him his character, his goodness, and who he is, his name. In fact, in the next chapter, when God actually does this, he shows him not only his name and his character, but also, 34 verse 5 says, himself. And the result of this is that Moses worships. So usually, so someone, usually God in the Bible, is glorified when they are revealed for who they truly are 
in a way that leads to worship or praise. This passage tells us that giving eternal life, this second concept, is something very similar. This is eternal life, Jesus prays, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Through both these concepts, Jesus' prayer here is that people might know, might see, might understand who God really is. But both these terms are also connected with time. Let's start with the second one, with eternal life. I could actually preach a whole sermon on this, um, but I'm not. I'm just going to try and keep it really, really tight. Um, The Greek word, I'm going to talk about the Greek for a second, but it's important. The Greek word translated as eternal here is aeonion, from which we get the word eon, or age. Tom Wright, who's one of my favorite theologians, points out that the Jews saw history as being divided into two ages, the present age and the age to come. In the age to come, God's Messiah, his anointed one, would bring God's justice, his peace, his healing to the world. So what's translated here as eternal life is, in other words, the life of the age to come. The life of the end of history. So in praying about those the Father has given him knowing eternal life or the life of the age to come, this prayer stretches to the end of time. But as we've seen, the prayer also stretches back to the beginning of time. Jesus asks in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. He is asking that he would be known in this moment for whom he has always been with the Father. But what does now mean? Well, immediately following this, we have Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. We'll be remembering them next week, particularly on Good Friday. This is the glory of the Son of God. Death on a cross. It is. And if we're in any doubt, we could turn back to John 12, where Jesus also prays to God about the hour and also says, glorify your name. And he continues, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Lift it up? Well, the evangelist says he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The Son is glorified in being lifted up on a cross. The Father is glorified in, being lift, in the Son being lifted up on a cross. And that glory is the glory that they shared before the world existed. In praying that he should be glorified now with the Father... Um, With the glory he had before the world existed, Jesus tells us that the cross is not just a passing event in time. It tells us about who God always has been. Before the world existed, the Son with the Father was the one who gave himself in love. This self-giving love is at the heart of God. In fact, I suggest to you, it's this self-giving love which enables a God who is three persons 
to be one. And it is this God that Jesus is praying that people should know. Jesus' prayer for those the Father has given him has its roots in the beginning time and stretches to the end of time. God is to be glorified by being known for who he is and always has been. And this knowing God and his Son is the life of the age to come. And we'll see in a bit, when I talk in my next section, about how this culminates in Jesus' prayer for the church. But in the next section of the prayer, it's clear that some of the tensions of it stretching from the beginning of time to the end raise some apparent contradictions which need explaining. And Hannah is going to tell you about them. So we thought it would be quite useful to continue to look at some of the sort of contradictory verses in this passage that um, I guess at first pass they look a little bit odd. Um, If I set you the task of taking 20 minutes to sit and reread the passage and and come up with all of the odd verses, um, you'd probably find lots of them. We're going to concentrate on three. The first example is an early one. It happens in verse 4. And here Jesus says, I have brought you um, glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Um, Now, that would be a really fair claim if this conversation was happening at Jesus' ascension. Um, But it's not. He's a few days too early for that. Um, he's, he doesn't actually get to say that he has finished God's work on earth until he's on the cross, really, until he says, and he does, he cries out, it is finished from the cross, and he actually is correct at that point. So is he incorrect now? Um, the next verse is verse 10, um, where he says, um, he talks a lot about um, the glory that has come to him through his disciples. Again, that might strike you as being a little bit wishful thinking as well. Up until this point, they've been pretty rubbish. They've never really understood him. They've always been having to sort of talk to each other behind his back going, what is he talking about? We don't get it. Um, They've been fairly faithless. They've been slow on the uptake. Um, And actually, it's about to get worse because Peter is going to deny Jesus um, before his crucifixion, and the disciples are going to be largely scattered. We know, with the benefit of hindsight, that it gets better, that their lives before they die, and indeed their deaths, do in fact bring glory to Jesus. But it's too early in the day for Jesus really to make the claim that he's been glorified by them now. Jesus is speaking as if it's a past reality, when actually it's a future thing. And finally, the, one, the last one that we've picked is, is verse 26, um, where Jesus says, I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them. And that I myself, myself, may be in them. He says, I have made you known. We know that in verse 4 to Jesus, from where he's standing and how he's praying, he actually believes that he's finished in some ways. And he has finished this making known. Um, And yet he also says that he will continue to reveal the Father. Now, you either finish knowing someone or you need to keep being sort of presented with someone. The two don't always sort of make sense together. He seems to have finished his work, and yet he is going to continue to finish it. As Adam's already said, this um, prayer is one that is rooted from one end of history all the way to the other. And remembering this, I think, will help us 
to make sense of the apparent oddities, the strange things in this passage, the contradictions that we knock up against throughout this prayer. When I was thinking about how to try and explain this, um, I was reminded of a program on Adam's computer. We are both, for our sins, Mac users, and Adam has a, a funky little program called Time Machine. Um, to be honest, I've only really seen it in action a couple of times. I'm not really sure what it does, but this is a screenshot. It's actually, there's our talk. Uh, this is a screenshot taken from Adam's computer. And um, it, it, what happens is, on your right, you've got a big um, sort of series of sort of white lines, and that starts from now and goes all the way back to the point where the Time Machine program was installed on his computer, which I think was about 2007. Um, and it shows different snapshots or sort of files almost in a, a filing cabinet of everything that was on Adam's computer at various points. Theory is, if, um, say, we wanted to try and figure out what our talk looked like a week ago, we couldn't remember if we changed things, then we could pop back to a week before and see the talk or the, what's on the computer in that current, current state. Um, we could go back three years and see sort of what the computer looked like. So if we've lost files, we can go back and restore them. It's all quite funky. And I'm not being on paid commission by Apple to tell you about it. Um, but I think that um, if Jesus was a Mac user, um, his computer would have the time machine function in a whole new way. He would have the ability to zoom all the way back to the beginning, um, as well as the ability to zoom all the way forward to the end. Um, <coughs> So um, when Jesus is praying this prayer, he has the ability um, to pray about things that have happened in the past and to remember things that are happening in the future, the cross and his resurrection and ascension. And he can speak with confidence about giving God glory and the disciples being amazing because he can see those events as they are as he's sitting looking at his computer forwards and backwards in time. Um, in this prayer, it's as though Jesus speaks of these um, future actions as past realities. He seems to always perceive history from a, the perspective of eternity. Um, he sits in front of his Mac, and it's easy for him. Um, and it's, uh, it's hard for us. We don't have that, that kind of option. Um, but it somehow, I think, helps to make sense a little bit of, of how Jesus can pray um, in these sort of contradictory ways. It also gives us hope. Um, in unseen realities. So when Jesus speaks about things that are miles from our own understanding um, and from the way that the world seems now, like unity with God or unity with each other, we should listen and we should trust him because his perspective is actually miles better than ours. Equally, when he speaks indirectly um, through other biblical writers, like maybe the disciples or through Paul, or even through people that we know now, if um, he's speaking prophetically or um, through words of knowledge that people have for us, we can have confidence that one day our lives will catch up with the point in time from which he is speaking, um, and we will experience the completion of his promises. I hope that's helped. There's one aspect of this prayer that this now and not yet Understanding is particularly important for. Um, and we're going to look at it now. If you would turn to verse 20, um, we're going to read that in, in a second because it's in these verses. Do I need to click? Oh, are you clicking for us? Can, thanks, clickers. Great. Um, the, it's in these verses that 
the tensions seem greatest. Um, when Jesus begins to pray for those who will believe in me through their word. In the, in the previous uh, verses, if you read them in more detail, you'll see that in some sense God is saying um, that he has made God known to the disciples, he's been glorified in them, he's brought them out of the world and sent them as he's been sent. But now he prays, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. The extraordinary implications of Jesus' prayer really become clear here. What it means for God to be glorified, for us to know him, to have eternal life, is shown here. Flowing out of God's self-giving, loving unity in himself from before time, Jesus is praying that we might be drawn into that, that we might be in God, and he in us, and that we might show that truth to the world by being one with one another. Knowing God is not just something that's in our heads or even in our hearts. Here, knowing God is extended into dwelling in God and Him dwelling in us. And in light of that, our being united together. And I don't know about you, but here the tension between the now and the not yet seems almost too big to comprehend. When I first approached this passage, it just seemed hopeless. Um, I thought of the huge divisions in the church that sometimes seem to be tearing the church apart. I thought of the way that Western Christians, we Western Christians, can lead lives of relative luxury while sisters and brothers in other parts of the world undergo persecution or face abject poverty. I thought of the fact that there's been a positions vacant for children's work on our information sheet for months, or that Steve has to sit stressing about how we're going to meet our budget. I thought of the way that I treat God as an afterthought or a crutch in times of crisis, the selfish way I pursue my own life and eke out a few spare portions of it to think about, pray pray for or serve other people in the church. And I ask, united with God? United with one another? Was this really the heart of the prayer of my Savior? Thankfully, though, I wasn't reading this passage on my own. And Hannah, as we've seen, saw things differently. 
She saw the way that this prayer was building through time, from God's person to its fulfillment in the fullness of the age to come. And that released me to see both the now and the not yet. I thought about our missional community and the way that people look out for one another. The way that Grace Lee, I had to put Lee because otherwise it sounds like it might be Grace the concept, sorry. Grace Lee uh, sends around prayer reminders. The way that people have organized meal rotors for Rantimi and Rotimi, for Hannah and uh, me as we've had children recently. For the way that Naomi cares for Aman and Cushy, the way that Jack and Claire welcome Naomi into their home. People love one another, even when it costs them. And as I write, I'm reminded of the myriad ways in which people among you have loved me, loved us, or love one another. And I'm reminded that this is true throughout the church in its different expressions. As Hannah would tell you, one of the most common comments made by Afghans, she's lived in Afghanistan, hence she can make it, um, on observing the communal life of Christians living in their country, is how is it that you love one another so well? This call to be together, united in our relationship with, me, with God, means that that relationship cannot be abstract. It's all very well to talk about the significance of knowing God or having him dwell in you or you in him. But that can't remain just talk when you are called to be one with the person next to you. Or indeed, one with the person across the city or across the country or across the globe who is hurting, is in need, is angry or disrespectful or, sometimes most challengingly, believes the wrong things or follows Jesus in the wrong way. Those wrongs are in inverted commas. In these challenges, we must remember again what the glory of Christ is. The cross. The God into whose relationship we are drawn is a God who is most fully known in the cross, in painful, self-giving love. Our oneness with him and sharing his glory reminds us of Jesus' new commandment in the parallel chapter in this discourse back in John 13, that we love one another as he loved us. Our unity with one another can only be grounded in our giving ourselves in love to one another. If that sounds painful, it's because it probably will be. The steps towards unity between black and white in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa after apartheid, or between Catholic and Protestant in Northern Ireland, call people to lay down their hurts, their hatred, their wounds at the foot of the cross. And as we love one another in painful ways, so we show the world, as it says in verse 23, how much God has loved us in his Son. And this takes us to the purpose of B brackets come 
close brackets, being one, being or becoming one, which Hannah is going to finish with. Elizabeth Barrett Browning once wrote a poem, poem called Aurora Lee, which is on the screens in front of you. Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries. The, po the poem here speaks of people, uh, of being people who sit up and take notice of God's presence in the ordinariness of our lives and our world, who recognize the extraordinary of that extraordinariness of that presence and respond in worship. Some aspect of that noticing um, we could call mission. We are the common bushes afire with God. We make him visible to a world in which some at least are watching. Our being and becoming one, our being and becoming love, reveals God, glorifies him in the world and persuades those seers to take off their shoes. Recently, Adam and I were at a wedding of a friend, and we got chatting with a, a chap we hadn't seen for a long time, um, who has spent the last 10 years or so working in Afghanistan, um, trying to see the church established in that country. As part of his ministry in the last couple of years, he really felt that God had called him to go and take some time to go and spend it with um, Bill, uh, 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 Bill Johnson's church um, called Bethel in California. Um, which you may have heard of. It's now quite famous for being somewhere that regularly sees um, miracles and signs and wonders taking place. Um, he went there expecting that God wanted to do was to sort of train him up in the miraculous and then to send him back to Afghanistan, all guns blazing, to see amazing things happen um, so that the Afghan church would be built up and encouraged so that Afghans themselves who didn't know Jesus would be sort of wowed with... Um, people being raised from the dead or um, people being amazingly healed. Um, but as he hung out with some of the leaders um, at that church, he said that he had begun to see something um, perhaps more important, something that seemed to be undergirding all of the miraculous things that have been going on there, um, not just as a one-off, but for over a prolonged period of time. Um, he described it as being a church that has an amazing culture of honor um, and humility gossip and backbiting and criticism are noticeable in their absence. Instead, people are deeply rooted in their own identity as children and friends of God, um, united with him and accepted by him. And that identity that they, that they understand in themselves leaves them free to honor and encourage because they no longer feel threatened by other people's giftings. They no longer feel that they need to protect their ministry or to sort of puff themselves up by putting other people down. Um, is now beginning to wonder if perhaps that might be the key lesson that God took him to Bethel for in the first place. He still loves the miraculous. He still wants it to happen in Afghanistan. But perhaps um, what is more important for the Afghan church in its position at the moment, where they're full of um, mistrust because of years of war, where they're full of um, sort of needing to, to make themselves have pride because um, they've not been able to do much for themselves um, for so long. Um, maybe what's more important to them is to foster love and unity among that fragile church for its own good, um, but also for the good of those who look on. Um, 
the famous phrase, if I adapted, is that unity and mission exist because worship doesn't. Um, but it also exists um, just because it's good. Our marriages are a good example of this, um, and perhaps more specifically this morning, our marriage um, is an example of this today. Writing this talk with my lovely husband has been a good and, ex and sometimes extraordinarily trying experience in the now and not yet of um, the nature of marriage. Those of you who were at our wedding will remember that when we got married, we signed up to putting behind all our own um, separate old ways um, and our individual selves, and suddenly um, the minister joined our hands above our heads with his own and proclaimed that we were actually one. Now, you would think that that would make writing this talk um, super easy because we would be thinking as if with one mind. However, um, the reality is that we are um, actually very different. We've had to do battle um, with the sermon as opposed to with each other. Um, and we've had to sort of tease out the direction that God would have us take this reading in this passage together rather than the direction that each of us individually would, would see it perhaps go. Um, we've, we've approached it from different angles, we think differently, um, we communicate in different ways, and that makes it quite difficult to craft a cohesive talk together. Um, what's more, we've come up against quite a lot of opposition this week. Um, our daughter Elena, who usually giggles and chats her way through any given day, decided for the last two days that she is going to grizzle every ten minutes. Um, praise God, she still sleeps well at night, but during the day, she doesn't want to be put down, she wants to be constantly fed, and it's really hard to type on a laptop when you only have one arm, particularly when that arm is being kicked constantly by a very long three-month-old. Um, Adam, who's diabetic, has had amazing blood sugars, inexplicably in the 20s, when normally his measurements are around six, for those you know, of you who know about diabetes, and his high blood sugar slows his mind down, and his pauses are long enough without that interfering on a normal basis. Um, several times in the past 24 hours, um, we spent all day yesterday sort of working on um, this talk together, which would have been fine had it not been Adam's birthday yesterday. And we just wanted to do other things, and we couldn't because we had agreed to do this talk, and we wanted to see it through because we knew that what we were doing was an expression of, um, I guess the battle we were having was an expression of what it is to be united. Um, on more than one occasion um, the last few days, particularly with Elena Balling, and we're discussing yet another nuance that had to be expressed in a different way, I, said, I just asked Adam to write me out of this talk and go it alone. And this is the reason why Jesus spends a significant amount of time in this prayer talking to God about protecting um, his people. Unity is hard, and we need his protection um, if we're going to actually be united effectively together. The reason for telling you all this is simply to say that we stand before you this morning as an expression of what it is to become one in real time. Um, that we stood before family and friends in 2009 and were pro proclaimed one by a vicar is no less real and true because of the difficulties that we face um, sometimes in living out our unity. We grow into the one that we are and will continue to do so for the rest of our lives. It really will take that long. <laughs> And this unity, for all the beauty um, of it being a missional thing, um, as something that is expressed for the outside world, also finds its purpose in simply being. Um, 
being one with each other in marriage or in church community, being one with God, it has value simply because of what it is. An extraordinary privilege, a wonder and a joy. Hard work sometimes, but always worth it. Um, Our unity flows from and is grounded in the nature of God himself, from all the way back at the beginning of time and on into eternity. We get to be the way in which earth gets crammed with heaven, to be a common bush, a fire with God himself. And it is glorious indeed.